stay connected at urbanmusicreport.com for the hottest music features and videos, fashion reports, sports stories, entertainment news, and technology updates at urbanmusicreport.com. Stay connected. Honestly speaking with Professor Bascom. How are you today? I'm very good, very good. Yes. So you are a journalist, author, professor, mm -hmm. all around writer and communicator. All around writer and communicator, yes. So let's start backwards. As a professor, what do you um, teach and where? I teach at Western Connecticut State University. Uh, I've taught there for 33 years, and I teach a wide variety of writing programs. Um, uh, fiction, nonfiction, any, anything but poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I like poetry, though. Uh, I'm not good at it, so I, I just avoid the students are better at it. <laughs> That's fine. So you start, I know you have um, background as a journalist. Mm -hmm. How do you transition from journalism to go into teaching? What was your motivation for that? Uh, like many things in my life, it, it was a complete accident. Um, I uh, my wife's uh, friend it was a dean at the university, and the person who ran the journalism program passed away suddenly. So they needed somebody to teach temporarily while they found a replacement. Uh, that was 33 years ago. <laughs> and uh, so I learned how to be an academic, but I had always been a journalist. I worked for uh, Time Inc. I worked for Money Magazine. I worked for um, United Press International. I worked for Pacific Stars and Stripes in Tokyo. Uh, so I've been writing stories my whole life. And so writing books is a longer version of what I was used to doing. And so I began writing books, and one book led to another. And before I knew it, I had, oh, I, I, I don't even know how many, I mean, 12 or 13 books that I've done. Wow. So you're teaching, and one day you wake up and you say, I want to write a book? No. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, and I were at, at his agent's house in Scarsdale, and he was dropping off some manuscript or something. She said, what do you do? And I said, I write stories. She, she said, what about? I said, just about anything, any kind of nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she called me about three months later and asked me if I would consider collaborating on a book with a woman who had had a near-death experience. And I said, let me meet her and we'll see. And so we did. We did that book. And the book was called Full Circle. Uh, and it was about this woman's um, near-death experience and, more importantly, about her lifestyle transformation. So I interviewed the um, uh, scientists who had studied this phenomenon. And there are scientists who study this, and it's a real science, uh, at the University of Connecticut. And they said that the bigger story is the transformations that these people go through after they've had a near-death experience. I said, let me see the research. And so I looked at the research, and what I discovered was just quite a phenomenon. People who have near-death experiences undergo a dramatic lifestyle transformation. Most of the time, it's positive. But this woman that I did the first book with, she was a very wealthy woman in Michigan. She left... Uh, 
Michigan. She came to UConn to be with these researchers. And she went from being a very wealthy woman to a woman living in a studio somewhere in some apartment complex in Connecticut. And she was perfectly happy doing it. Um, and she started doing odd things like visiting the death, uh, the dying people in the hospitals that she didn't know and holding their hand. And wow. I, I said, why do, you, why do you do this? And she says, I just, I have to. I have to tell them that dying is part of life and there's a better place. I said, in a religious sense? She said, no, not in a religious sense, in an actual sense. I said, how do you know? And she says, I've, I've been there. And these people make all kinds of bizarre claims like they met God. Stay connected at UrbanMusicReport.com for the hottest music features and videos, fashion reports, sports stories, entertainment news, and technology updates at UrbanMusicReport.com. Stay connected. Amanda Jane here, Honestly Speaking, live at the New Hope Baptist Church in Danbury, Connecticut with Professor Bascom. That was very interesting for your first layer of books. Fast forward, you wrote a series of books kind of digging into the history of the Harlem Renaissance. Is that correct? That is correct. So could you like share what was the motivation factor for that? Uh, as a reporter, uh, as a writer, I'm always curious about all kinds of things. Uh, one summer I was in Washington uh, at the Library of Congress and I love libraries, and so the Library of Congress is a wonderful place for me to go. You just tell them you want uh, boxes and boxes of material about this, the other. They'll bring you one box at a time. You have to wear white gloves so that you, the, the, the oil on your hands don't damage the manuscripts. But I was reading uh, unpublished manuscripts from Harlem uh, that I discovered online, and uh, I, I went there, and they kept bringing me boxes and boxes of stories of unpublished stories by Ralph Ellison, Dorothy West, um, Zora Neale Hurston. Um, and so I was just fascinated by what I had found. So I collected all the stories I could find from the Work Progress Administration, the WPA, uh, about Harlem. And uh, I collected those, and that became the uh, source of my first Harlem book. Um, the second Harlem book was um, about Dorothy West, because in my research, I kept reading that she was the youngest member of the Harlem Renaissance. She had some sort of modest success as a writer, as a short story writer. But what I discovered is Dorothy had been a, an accomplished short story writer but from the time she was about 15 in Boston. And she'd won all kinds of literary awards in Boston. Um, she applied uh, to a literary award in Harlem for a magazine called Opportunity. And they brought her to New York for uh, a ceremony where she won second prize for a short story that she had written. Mm -hmm. And she, she, she won a second prize along with Zora Neale Hurston. They had to share the second prize. Zora didn't care for that very much. And she, <laughs> she complained about it all the time. But that's how she, Dorothy, got to New York. Um, what I discovered is Dorothy touted herself as the, the, the last living member of the Harlem Renaissance. So she referred to herself as the, the last leaf on a tree of uh, uh, literary people from Harlem. Dorothy was much more than that. My research showed that she was probably the most prolific member of the Harlem Renaissance, mm -hmm. uh, beyond Langston Hughes, Sarania Hurston, and all the others that we know, um, but she was quiet about it. She wrote short stories for the New York Daily News for 20 years under her, yeah. own, under her byline, um, quietly. 
and she had the same literary agent as um, Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, that's an accomplishment. Exactly. Now, from we all have these defining moments in research, and from what I've read about you and learned about you, you've come across some people who've had significant defining moments, but they weren't put in the forefront. Exactly. So, just briefly, you know, tell us some names of people who didn't get their, you know, accolades for. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it, in some in some cases, the, the the cameras on them weren't focused sharply enough. For example, A. Philip Randolph is is credited with being the labor leader of the uh, first black union, the Pullman Porters Union, and he certainly did that. But he did much more. Uh, he was the founder of the. March on Washington movement, which was a national movement, which was used as a lever to convince the federal government to make certain concessions for Negroes, for black people. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he, he was instrumental in uh, getting the federal contractors to be in integrated uh, in, a in a compromise with the president, President Roosevelt. Um, he did this quietly, and he used as, lever as a lever the threat of bringing black people to Washington to protest. Um, those protests never occurred, but the plans were always in place. Um, another person is a wonderful writer whose stories I found at the Library of Congress, Vivian Morris. She was an accomplished journalist. I don't know where she learned her skills, but she, I'm a journalism professor. She wrote as well as anybody I know, in the business or out of the business. This was in 1938, 1937, 30. Yeah, I think she only worked for the WPA for... Uh, a year and a half, mm -hmm. but in that year and a half, she wrote wonderful stories, which are in uh, a Renaissance in Harlem, uh, my first Harlem book. But if you read those stories, Harlem comes alive. The Harlem churches come alive. Um, there's a, a building somewhere in 135th Street called Race Horse, Horse Row, and you could go in there and, 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 and gamble. You could do all kinds of things there. But she made that building come alive. It wasn't just some place where people went to to do uh, to gamble. They went there to socialize. They went there to meet each other. They went there because they hadn't seen cousins in a long time, and they knew they could find them there. Um, she did another uh, piece of some women who work in a um, laundry. Awful work. Uh, there were so many white shirts in this room that she went in, you, you would be blinded by it, uh, by the whiteness. Mm -hmm. uh, she snuck in there. Uh, she wasn't supposed to be in there. And the people who ran the place did not want people like her in because she was a reporter. Exactly. Well, they didn't want a reporter in there telling the stories, and the work was just awful. Um, you can imagine how hot it must have been in August to work in this environment. These women sang to each other all day long to cope with their circumstances. This makes uh, Harlem come alive when you read these stories in, 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 in tandem, which I did at the library. Mm -hmm. um, my problem at the library is I, I never want to leave. I don't know what I'm going to do with this stuff, but I just want to read stuff as stuff after stuff. I'll tell you one story uh, how this stuff does come alive, literally. Um, you talk about broadcast and, and, and uh, recording. I, I found um, a, a manuscript for a, a, a pushcart vendor. He called himself Kingfish, and he sold fish. Uh, in those days, you didn't have to go to a grocery store. Somebody would come to your block. Right. So Kingfish would go to a black neighborhood. He'd sing spirituals. He'd go to a Jewish, Jewish neighborhood, he'd sing Yiddish. Uh, he'd go to an Italian neighborhood, he'd sing opera. But that was to get the housewives to open their windows, and he could yet shout up to them and tell them what kind of fish he had. So they give me this manuscript at the library. Now, you imagine, I'm sitting with white gloves, 
and I'm reading. I don't want to leave. I just want to read more and more. Right. One of the librarians comes to me and they said, the folk life people would like to see you when you finish. Uh, I said, uh, how do they know I'm here? They said, everybody knows you're here. Everybody knows what you're doing. <laughs> so I walk to the old part of the library. They take me into this little room. They take a little cassette tape recorder and they played something and I almost had a heart attack. I hear Kingfish singing an aria in Italian because they had taped him. Wow. The, the WPA had taped him. They followed him around and they taped him. Now that just made that story that I just read 10 minutes ago come alive. I could hear his voice and I was just, it, I got chills because it, it, a piece of history had been preserved and I was in a library where I read the flat piece, which was okay. Right. And then I could see, and he had all these little ditties. We talk about rap music. He had all these limericks and these rhymes that he would use. Uh, I got clams, I got fish, I got, but, and he would, he would rhyme the, the, the variety of fish that he had mm -hmm. that day. And then the next day he would, and this is all spontaneous. Uh, he would make it up to next week because the next day he'd have a different kind of fish. You know, I got catfish, I got porgies, I got whatever right. he had. Anyway, uh, that was my experience at the library. So um, um, I learned to detangle myself and collect all this stuff and turn it into a book. Now, we're here live at the New Hope Baptist Church. There's something very pivotal about this church and your upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, tell me what this church means to you from you as a, a young man growing up. This was our family church. Uh, at the time, there were two black churches in this small town, and uh, this was one of them. Uh, this building we're in now is a brand new new building that's probably four years old or five years old. Um, and there were three versions of the church built uh, over the years. Um, but this is where I got my moral compass. Uh, this is where the elders would scold me for sitting in the, the wrong seat and uh, or being late for choir or, wh or whatever I was doing. And I was a bit of a scallywag as a kid. <laughs> I haven't heard that I'm, in years. I, well, I, I'm reading all these old manuscripts, so I have all this old language <laughs> stuck in my head. Uh, but this church is from, is we left this church in 1963 to go on the march on Washington. This church was a very big part of it, and we had chaperones that watched the youth group go down to Washington and come back from Washington. This is where my parents, all my family are buried. Uh, we have the services here when someone passes. Um, and so this is a, a, a grounding place for me. And my, my, my mother would be happy to hear me say that. Oh, well, we're going to take a pause for a second. This is Amanda Jane, and we'll be right back, honestly speaking, with Professor Bascom. Stay connected at UrbanMusicReport.com for the hottest music features and videos, fashion reports, sports stories, entertainment news, and technology updates at UrbanMusicReport.com. Stay connected. Hi, it's Amanda Jane. I'm back here, honestly speaking, live at the New Hope Baptist Church. And in honor of Black History Month, I get the pleasure of sitting with Professor Bascom. Oh, thank you. Yes the Harlem Renaissance man. Now, Professor Bascom, I want you to tell me about your latest book, where we can find it, and what the theme of the book is. Okay, uh, the latest book is called Harlem, Crucible of Modern African-American Culture. Uh, you can purchase it on Amazon or anywhere, any place that books are sold. Um, 
and the theme is uh, uh, the, the, the story of the Harlem Renaissance is a kind of a skewed story, uh, as I found in my research. Um, what's missing in most, most histories about the Renaissance are the progressive movements, the many progressive movements, simultaneous progressive movements that grew up in Harlem and then fanned out into the rest of the country. Uh, uh, for example, you have, uh, well, you have the crisis in the NACP magazine, which was founded by W.E. Du Bois in Harlem. Um, you have uh, The Messenger, which was uh, a newspaper uh, published by W.E.D., I mean, William Randolph. And you had all kinds of movements, the Marcus Garvey movement. Um, you had uh, the March on Washington movement, which almost nobody knows about, um, in Harlem. You had Thurgood Marshall uh, working out of a storefront in Harlem uh, for the NACP, but traveling around the country defending African Americans for all kinds of crimes and plotting, along with uh, professors uh, at, at Howard, to attack segregated uh, schools. And this wasn't a happenstance. He didn't just show up in front of the Supreme Court. He plotted and planned and went around the country defending uh, African-Americans in different cases in order to build the case that he eventually presented before the Supreme Court. But this was all based in New York. And you had uh, uh, legal scholars from Howard coming into the Harlem to plot this plan, this scheme, if you will, mm -hmm. to s attack segregated uh, schooling, uh, which resulted in uh, Brown versus Board of Education. This was all plotted in meetings with the NACP in Harlem, with W.D. Du Bois in Harlem. Uh, how can we attack this, this thing? You had that doctors um, at, the, at, at their own clinics um, uh, who uh, did a famous study, the Black Dow study, which was done in Harlem. And the study showed that if you give black children a black dial and a white dial, they'll choose the white dial because they think that the black dial is inferior. Thurgood Marshall used that study in his argument for the Supreme Court to show that segregation harms black children uh, with this black dial study. Mm -hmm. but that was done in Harlem as well. So there were all these simultaneous things going on in Harlem, way beyond the music and beyond the literature, beyond the poetry, beyond the artistic side of Harlem, Renaissance, Harlem Renaissance, which everyone wants to talk about, uh, which is fine. That was part of what happened. Uh, but you had Dorothy West. Uh, my literary grandmother, which I adopted her. Um, well, the same way Alice Walker adopted Zora, uh, I adopted Dorothy. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I've done one book on Dorothy, and I just adore Dorothy. She was just this sweet old woman, this sweet little teenager who showed up in New York, unafraid, unintimidated, and just worked her magic as a writer. I mean, a really skillful writer. Um, I found her stories at the Library of Congress, too. Um, and she's... Um, um, well, oh, I, uh, here's what happened. I, uh, one of the stories that I found was called My Baby, unpublished, written in 1938. I brought it back to Connecticut. I took it to our literary journal, and I said to them, this, read this story. They read the story. They said, we have to publish this. We have to publish this. And so for the first time since, she, since 1938, one of Dorothy's stories that had not been published was published uh, in the uh, Connecticut Journal, our literary journal. Mm -hmm. The next year... Dorothy was included in America's Best Short Stories, wow. along with famous people. Now, she had already died, 
but my research allowed me to take one of these stories from Washington, bring it to Connecticut, and then bring it to Houghton Mifflin, who published it in America's Best Short Stories, I believe in the year 2000. And uh, um, uh, that was the crowning achievement for me. And everyone wants to give me credit for it. I said, no, I wasn't in America's Best Short Stories. Dorothy West was in America's Best Short Stories. But you brought the dark into the light, so that's that's very uh, commendable. That's what journalism is. That's right. what journal good journalism is. And and I was more than delighted to see Dorothy's story uh, honored that way. To see her honored that way. Well, Professor Bascom, I am so honored and privileged to have been sitting next to you here today. Well, thank you. And I'm me. looking forward to your next novel, <laughs> please. And um, maybe we'll catch up to you on your lecture tours and everything else. Thank you for being live at New Hope Baptist Church. Amanda Jane, honestly speaking, celebrating Black History Month with an unsung hero who has just been sung, Professor Basker. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having me. Stay connected at urbanmusicreport.com for the hottest music features and videos, fashion reports, sports stories, entertainment news, and technology updates at urbanmusicreport.com. Stay connected.